Welcome to Sci-Fi Tech Talk, the podcast where we explore the technology of sci-fi. I'm Mike McPeak, and with me today is Jeff Sire. Hello. And today's movie is Blade Runner. Um, We'll start with the, the synopsis. The film depicts a dystopian Los Angeles in November 2019 in which genetically engineered organic robots called replicants, visually indistinguishable from adult humans, are manufactured by the powerful Tyrell Corporation as well as by other mega-manufacturers around the world. Their use on Earth is banned and replicants are exclusively used for dangerous, menial, or leisure on off-world colonies. Replicants who defy the ban and return to Earth are hunted down and retired by police special operatives known as Blade Runners. The plot focuses on a brutal and cunning group of recently escaped replicants hiding in Los Angeles and the burnt-out expert Blade Runner, Rich Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, who reluctantly agrees to take on one more assignment to hunt them down. Now, I know I've had a few people uh, say... Would you guys explain Blade Runner to me? And, <laughs> and I've watched it several times, and you know, on on one level, yeah, you get it, but you know, if you try to think about it, it it it, it does need a little explaining. Well, I think when if you watch it, uh, and keep in mind that Ridley Scott directed it, and then you watch the movie Alien and the movie Prometheus that just came out last summer, you can kind of see that he's a director that doesn't. I don't this is my take on it but I don't think he wants to just club you over the head and drill everything in there and I think part of it is he wants to leave the viewer uh sort of in the in the position to make up their mind about what the story is or, or what's happened like at the end of definitely at the end of Blade Runner it's sort of up to you to decide what is what the answer is right and and I've seen him him interviewed and he's very Kind of like, well, what do you think? Like, it's, you know, the decision is yours. And I was trying to find the quote here, but he called Blade Runner one of his most uh, satisfying and fulfilling movies, I think was the quote. Or so. In other words, he was, uh, he was happy with it. Um, and from a stylish, stylistic standpoint, it certainly is a good movie. It's got oh, that yeah. kind of film noir uh, type thing going, and there's a lot of atmosphere, and certainly it's a very visual uh, movie. Like, I think this is one of those movies where you can, like, tech aside, you can point to as a real kind of um, landmark for sci-fi. Like, you can look at sci-fi movies that come before this, and you can look at the ones that come after, and you can see that this is this is a turning point that other movies... Uh, used as an anchor to tell their stories off of. This is a real landmark film. Yeah, it, it's one. Yeah, it's certainly in the top tier of sci-fi movies. Um, like, especially the visual stuff. And then you know, once you kind of start exploring the plot, you know that it, it's also like it's a good plot, but it does leave a few questions. You know, one of the first questions I had was. You know, among others, I guess, was why did the replicants have to look like um, humans? I mean, yeah. we've kind of explored that subject before that, you know, androids wouldn't have to necessarily look like us. And I haven't read the book that this is based on, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? But I did look up the uh, Wikipedia synopsis of it. And just kind of skimming over that, just kind of 
you know that kind of answers a few questions because they never really addressed it in the in the movie but apparently there had been an atomic war on earth and this in Los Angeles is one of the few untouched places left and so they're trying to encourage people to go off planet to settle in uh, there and yeah. so to encourage them they gave them replicants um to to go with them to leave the uh to leave this planet and go otherwhere uh, other places and settle um now, why they don't want them coming back? Why, you know, like I said, some of those questions are never really quite answered. Yeah. Um, we were talking before we started to record, and, like, I read the book, but uh, uh, but it was, like, when I was back in high, early high school, I think. So it's been a very long time since I read this book. Um, and But as I recall... The book and the movie do not share a whole lot of similarities. Like I remember Rick Deckard, his name is the same, and he's a cop that hunts down um, the androids. Uh, but I think that's it's well, a, 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 kind of where a lot of the similarities end. Uh, I remember that there's different ca- – there's a whole cast system. Uh, they keep referring p- to people uh, by uh, like animals, like there's ant heads and – Ant heads like Leon. I remember he, Leon is an ant head. Like he's he's really uh, very low IQ, and uh, they, there's a bunch of stuff like that. Well, well yeah, and, and in the book, um, it was a status symbol to have a real um, animal because they had synthetic animals. Uh, yeah. But uh, because of the war, real animals have become a scarce commodity. So to have a, a real one and not a replicant animal was actually considered a status symbol. Um, and like I say, there, and even in the book, it was kind of alluded to that maybe um, Deckard himself may be an android. Um, and that was nothing, that was something that was never, you know, explored in the, in the movie. So, well, what 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 do you think? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it brings up all these questions, you know, because Rachel, uh, uh, they said that she was a android, but were they telling the truth? Um, were they trying to uh, trip up? Because Deckard had to interview her to test out um, their uh, detection techniques on this new form of replicants, the Nexus Six. Um, to see if they would work, and he determined that she was, and Tyrell said he was, but you know, you're taking his word for it. Yeah. I think, um, I, and again, like a lot of it is just left up to the viewer to decide, but I think he is a replicant um, for several reasons. One is uh, they seem to be a very high um, status on, uh, like, uh, actual photographs seem to be very significant, and he has that whole collection of black, even black and white photographs, and all of this other stuff. And also, they talk about implanting memories. And Decker's whole story actually starts at the start of the movie. Like they have to go and get him to bring him back to become a cop. It's like he's he's left the cops or something like that, but they don't explain why. And uh, and then the so it, it's almost like his life is starting at that point, uh, even though he has these memories of a life before. 
and he has no contact with any other cops other than his boss and that guy Gaff, like the Edward James almost uh, character. So it, it's almost like they're the ones that would know he was a replicant. And the final thing is his uh, dream about the uh, his memory of the unicorn, and that Gaff apparently knows that he has that memory. So to me, when you add that all together and the fact that she asks him if he's ever taken the test and he doesn't answer, so I think he is a replicant. Okay, now I'm going to have to go back and rewatch that movie because that was a layer that I never even – because I know I remember um, the uh, the uh, Gaff character sitting there, I thought rather annoyingly, making little uh, – Oh, what's the paper? Um, the origami. Origami, yeah. Um, uh, things leaving, uh, leaving him around all over the place. I noticed he did leave that little unicorn for him as he was leaving his apartment, uh, Deckard's apartment in the final scene. That's the significant. Uh, that's what I think it is. That's the significance of he's letting him know, uh, like, I know that you have this memory. And, all, uh, like that, and that's obviously a fake memory. Like, he couldn't have a memory of a real unicorn, right? So I think it, it's... It's his way of telling him, like, yeah, you're a replicant because I know about this secret. Because remember, it was significant uh, when Decker was asking her these memories that he knew she had never told anybody. Well, this is obviously like him remembering this unicorn. That's obviously a memory he's never, ever told anybody. And that's Gaff more or less letting him know, I know this memory that, that you've never have told anybody. I'm letting you know that you're a replicant. Yeah, and you know, I guess the uh, you know kind of the when, uh, to get to the tech part here, you know, talking about the replicants, the the way to distinguish a replicant from a real human is the fact that a replicant doesn't have any empathy. Um, they don't have. I um, I don't want to say they don't have feelings, but they just don't seem to care, have that level of caring about other people the way that a human would. So that the the test the. Uh, the Voigt-Kampf test that they uh, administer is asking a series of questions about how you would react uh, in different situations. And then they measure the pupil response because a replicant could fake uh, you know, some empathy, but you, you sit there and you measure their response and how they react to the questions, and eventually you can figure out that they're faking it or that this is real. And- that was something that I wasn't like uh- – did you get the whole part when he's talking to Tyrrell about – like it obviously took him a lot longer to figure out that Rachel was a replicant and he said that, that the key was that to have these implanted memories, that that was uh, – I, I assume that he meant that that's where the empathy comes from is that once they have this whole kind of um, – this whole backstory to their life – that that was what gave them the empathy. Did you think that that was what he was saying, or something? Yeah, because I know that he was. There was something important about the implanted memories, and yeah, I think it's what uh, kind of what you said that that if they are able to draw on something, it would be easier for them to put you know empathy in context and be able to um, fake it better. But at some point, you're going to get tripped up because they. Because Deckard said normally it would take him about 30 questions or so to weed out a replicant, and then it took him about 100 or so on Rachel. And I think it was that if they have a bigger knowledge base basically to draw from, then they are able to maybe uh, construct more of these, you know, empathic, 
emphatic feelings and be able to fake it. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, uh, man, I, I really couldn't say enough good things about this movie. The, uh, like the whole thing. It, it, I love a movie like this that makes you think. And well, this certainly, uh, this is a movie that stays with you and you end up thinking a lot about it afterwards. So. Well, yeah. I don't like a spoon fed movie where, you know, everything is spelled out. Um, you know, sometimes I wished, like I said, I wish some of this stuff was a little clearer. Like after I kind of read the synopsis for the book, then I kind of went, okay, I, a little bit of more of this, you know, made sense, um, about like the weather because did it ever stop raining in that uh, i don't i don't think so and that no. certainly added to the noir feel of it all but yeah. it was kind of like man you know when you know the whole post-apocalyptic um um you know feeling to it it certainly enhanced the feeling of all that but it, it yeah. did get on a person's nerve after a while well, anytime they were at the uh, Tyrrell Corporation, I don't think we ever saw rain there. So maybe it was just that the building was so big they were up above the clouds. But uh, yeah. that could be, are you rich enough to rise above it all, or something like that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, we kind of mentioned that that Voigt uh, Kampf uh, machine that they used, or the test that they used, and basically that was just kind of like a uh, a polygraph like thing that um, would measure. Uh, bodily functions such as respiration, blush response, heart rate, and eye movement. I think it's supposed to be, I'm just looking it up, but I think it's supposed to be a variant of the Turing test, which I'll just, uh, the Turing test is was something that was developed by Alan Turing, uh, who was a code breaker in World War II. And it, he, um, when they were talking about, started to talk about artificial intelligence, uh, he developed the idea for this test. I don't think he actually ever developed the test itself, but the idea was that you would devise a test that um, I think it was emotional responses and things like that. And the idea that uh, uh, somebody could question a computer and a person and that you would achieve true artificial intelligence when the questioner couldn't tell who was the human and who was the computer. Yeah, because a computer would have a programmed response, and once it gets good enough to be able to uh, adapt its program to the point where you couldn't tell the difference, then you would uh, have achieved, I guess, Android perfection. Yeah, or unless you're like a Heisman football player and have a relationship with a bot on the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, and then that's just, well, you need an IQ test, not a uh, uh, response <laughs> test. But, uh, um, yeah, uh, and, you know, it was basically kind of like a, a, a lie detector. Um, but yeah, the, it says here the bellows were designed, um, uh, let's see, it, well, it says uh, a lie detector to measure contractions of the iris muscle in presence of invisible airborne particles emitted from the body. The bellows were designed for the latter function and gave the machine the, the menacing uh, air of, of a sinister insect. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, so, I mean, so what, was the, what were the bellows doing? They were well, it, monitoring pheromones or something? Or? Yeah, something like that. It says invisible airborne particles emitted by the body. Um, so oh, yeah. I suppose, yeah, if pheromones, because uh, in, um, you know, like your fight or flight uh, uh, mechanisms would release stuff. So, you know, if it 
if the replicant felt like it was getting trapped, maybe it'd start releasing more uh, of the, you know, fear hormones, um, and maybe it's monitoring for that. Hmm. Um. What about uh, the cars? What did you think of them? The spinners, yeah. Um, well, I noticed, you know, I, I um, there what I guess the cars was more of a status symbol too, because um, I was thinking, you know, everyone talks about flying cars, but cripe, some of the drivers I've seen around here, no way should they be allowed in a flying car. Uh. Um, so <laughs> this was more of a status symbol, and the police had them, but yeah, they were kind of um, the vertical takeoff and landing type vehicles. Um, um, they were called spinners, and uh, so they could take off and, and they could fly. And you know, I thought that was uh, they looked pretty neat. Uh, yeah, and they were yeah ma- mainly mainly police. Uh, I think is who had them. Yeah, I read something uh, after I watched the movie. I was look- reading some stuff online, and there was some reference made. I don't know if it's in Wikipedia or where it was. I read it, but saying that. Uh, the cars were like a status symbol, and the police had them. And that, but it was obvious that uh, like certain people who had money had them. Like I didn't really notice, other than the fact that there was obviously a ton of people and not very many of the cars. Um, I didn't really notice that they were uh, um, that there were rich people flying around in them. But it it made it did make sense, right? And I was looking at the description here. It says that the vehicle was conceived and designed by Sid, Sid Mead, who described the spinner as an aerodyne, a, a vehicle which directs air downward to create lift. Uh, through press kits for the uh, film stated the spinner was propelled by three engines, conventional internal combustion, jet, and anti-gravity. Um, so apparently it takes like three engines to kind of make that thing <laughs> Did it drive on the ground? Yeah, yeah, it drove like a car because remember he was driving through the tunnels and stuff okay, like that? Okay, right. Okay, so that would be yeah. the internal combustion. Um, okay, that's kind of sounds kind of complicated to have three because you'd think you could either do it with internal combustion and the, uh, the uh, jet. Yeah, I think you'd need like multiple fuel tanks too. <laughs> yeah, um, and considering the city was probably heavily polluted the way it was, um, that's probably they probably also limited cars for that reason too, just to yeah. keep the pollution down. This was also one of the ones that uh, you see other kind of sci-fi movies that are set in the future that are kind of like this, where there's a zillion people. The streets are seem to be just about always perpetually packed, and uh, they never really explain where these people are going. They're just milling around on the streets, right? So yeah, they they don't seem to have any purpose or destination. Because um, uh, yeah, even like uh, down in the was it the subway where um, he was chasing that one uh, the snake dancer, exotic dancer, whatever she yeah. was. Um, you know, there seemed to be they did have public transportation that people use, but it, it just did seem to be crowded, and there didn't seem to be a point. Um, for people traveling around. That's something we could probably talk about is that uh, going back to the replicants about how, you know, they obviously had these different replicants for different uses. Like Leon was just like a worker. And then the two girls seemed to be uh, like some kind of like sex type oriented thing. 
well, and then and then Roy was like a soldier. But do, there's more and more talk now about because uh, animating is getting so good that you might not really need to have an actor in a movie if you could do it cheaper digitally, right? Do you think we're ever going to get to that point? Well, it depends. I mean, if they could achieve a level where you couldn't tell the difference, maybe. But I just think a human being, well, you know, now it's kind of down to the same question about, you know, replicants uh, versus humans. I think a human would maybe bring just a little bit more emotion and character to it. I just don't know that a computer could quite capture that little twitch of a you know an eye or something like that. You could maybe program it in, but I don't know if you could quite get it to look natural. Okay, well, what about uh, in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies? Do you think Andy Serkis, who plays Gollum, do you think he should have been nominated for an Academy Award? I know there was a brouhaha <laughs> about that one. Uh, because, uh. yeah, because he was... Now, how did that go? Did he provide the voice and the um, green but he screen? Did the, he did not only the voice, but he did the acting in the in one of those weird suits with all the dots. Right. And then they, they animated, put a, put a digital skin over him. So that's why they said he wasn't eligible for the acting award because you never actually – it wasn't actually him on screen. But like I don't I don't see how that's different than somebody who uh, like the guy who played the Elephant Man, right? Yeah, I was gonna say if you're under a ton of makeup, um, what's the difference? Right. Yeah. Whether it be Just real makeup or digital makeup. Exactly. Yeah. Like digital makeup or or, or real makeup. So. Yeah, and you know it, it's yeah. kind of that thing that um, you know. Sh- sh- should he have been uh, nominated for that because he wasn't quite you know real in our sense and it's kind of the same way with the replicants because they only had a four-year lifespan and you know and i guess that kind of to kind of bring it back to the movie here where there was that question that you know in my mind what constitutes you know a living being a human because they would retire them which was the polite word for shooting them and getting rid of them but uh, because they were considered non-human slaves basically uh, and it, it's kind of the you know you could take this whole uh, scenario and take it back 130 years to the the Civil War, and because there was that debate about whether you know blacks were considered human or not, uh, and I think it's just kind of a story that keeps repeating itself is what constitutes human and like yeah. or what constitutes you know living even um, because we've had that discussion on uh, different things about uh, you found it fascinating in. Uh, Oh shoot! Which book? The for um, forever war? No, the one with the uh, LG uh, island in it. I oh, uh, yeah, oh yeah, I know. Uh, Legion of the Damned. There we go. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, and so it's kind of that. What constitutes a living being, and are we? Should we be the ones defining it? Because obviously, yeah. we're going to define it in our own favor. Um, to our, you know, to our best, uh, whatever suits us best. If we come out on top, that's the definition that we're going to use. Yeah, that that ex- that's exactly it. Like, okay, well, where's the definition where we come out on top? Oh, that must be, and we use that for intelligence, and we use that for other things. So, like, okay, like at, at one point, uh, human beings said, "Well, you know, we are obviously the the top dogs here because we are tool users." 
Well, then they say, oh, well, there's certain other things that like, you know, certain types of apes, they use that little stick where they get ants. And then there's there's uh, what the hermit crab or whatever, you know, like there's other animals that use tools like, oh, OK, so we won't use that anymore. Uh, let's say, well, you know, we're self-aware that what's that's what makes us different. Well, then they, you know, well, OK, well, dolphins are self-aware and these other, you know, they, they look at the other other things. Oh, OK, we're going to back off from that. Like and you keep kind of narrowing this pie and, but, it, you know, because it's us, it's always got to be us that's on, on the top and we can't have anybody else up there with us. So, you know, because God forbid, like, you know, we consider dolphins uh, intelligent enough that we have to protect them and, like, stop polluting the oceans and stuff like that. So. Well, I like the line from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where the humans were actually the third most intelligent uh, creatures oh, yeah. on the Earth. Yeah. Uh, and then once uh, you know Arthur Dent realizes that it was actually the mice are ahead of us, you know, you know, he's kind of, it kind of blew his mind. But um, right. yeah, and you have to wonder at what point humans will actually kind of go, you know, the uh, the Bill and Ted moment where they go, we're not worthy, and uh, <laughs> actually say that maybe we aren't, uh, you know, the superior life form. Well, you know, like I, I think a lot that if we ever do come across another alien race. There's going to be a whole lot of things like there's things that we have done that we consider like the pinnacle of, you know, humanity, like music and art and stuff like that. And uh, we could very well come across an alien intelligent species that just totally (laughs) either either totally goes so far beyond us in, in the areas that we consider to be our best or don't even recognize that as being worthwhile in the least right yeah because i was just thinking what if they showed up here and they you know looked at mount rushmore and went oh that's quaint or yeah. i'm trying to think of some other monumental you know accomplishment that we've done there or or if you just look at something like say it was a, a place where something like similar to a whale evolved you know like anything that is visual totally insignificant like their entire like their the the part of their brain that handles sound is like what four times as large as ours so like they're more or less their dominant uh sense is sound so they wouldn't even you know register anything visual as being anything more significant than what we register as our hearing and like you know you know people can be deaf and get through life just fine because we're so visually oriented right like, like, uh, not to say that one person is better than the other, but if, if you had to grade yourself on, you know, like if I had to lose, you know, a certain sense, like if I had the option of going blind over going, you know, deaf and had to pick one, I know which one I would be picking because I'm so heavily dependent on sight, right? Yeah, and, you know, for me, you know, it would be tough for anybody. I love music, but I love to look at things too. Yeah, I mean, that would be tough. I. I might just end up, if I had to choose, I might just get a coin and say, you know, let luck decide. Because I don't know that I could really say with any definite certainty one would be better over the other. Yeah. And, you know, it's also too, um, you know, we'll throw this in for Julia. It all goes back to Star Trek. <laughs> um, the Borg. Uh, oh, she'll be so proud. Yes. <laughs> um, with their hive mind, uh, you know, uh, consciousness thought that we were inferior because we would run around like you know separate little entities there was no uh good communication between us and they and i they were figured they were superior because they could re- uh 
communicate instantly with each other and they all shared the same consciousness, which made things much more efficient when it comes to stuff rather than us, you know, somebody over there doing his thing, somebody else over there doing their thing, and we never really get together and communicate and, you know, get our, you know, we're pooping a group here. Um, and so they considered that we were inferior. And, you know, it, it like I think who, whoever's superior is, depends upon what viewpoint you're taking. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree totally. It, it's, and you, you see that in just normal society. Um, it, it's wherever you, like, you, you see people who purposely forego, uh, career advancement because okay well i want to spend more time at home and that's a you know just just something as simple as that right yeah or you know i had when i was in high school i had a uh, um, a mother, one of my friends, say something about, you know, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I said, I'm going to become a farmer. And she seemed kind of disappointed at that because she thought I should, you know, do something greater. But, you know, I considered being uh, a farmer a, you know, uh, worthwhile and, you know, vocation yeah. and everything. So, yeah, it does depend upon one's viewpoint. Yeah. Yeah, very true. Um, yeah, so, I mean, they, um, and, you know, but, you know, never really explained in the movie, and I, Still don't quite understand why they considered the the replicants inferior and why they only gave them a four year lifespan. It seemed like they feared them for some reason, maybe because they could blend in. But I think at near the start of the film that that they said that uh, they capped them at four years because they said that by six years they were starting to develop uh, I don't know the psychosis or they would they started to have problems. By the six-year mark. So in order to prevent that from being an issue, uh, a widespread issue, that they gave them this uh, four-year lifetime cap. Well, now, were they – I'm trying to remember now. Were the replicants aware that they were I think the replicants, uh, they seemed aware that um, that they they did have a cap, but I don't think they knew how long because when when Decker caught up to them – uh, that was one of the first things Leo Leon asked him was like you know because he knew his birth and he said what's you know what's the cap or what's the, what how long do I have or something like that right well and I could see how maybe that would be um, you know if they weren't aware or if they were sudden or slowly becoming aware of their situation. You know, I could see how that would cause some sort of psychosis because you know if you've uh, lived your life a certain way and then you come to realize that um, you know, let's say the people who find out uh, later in life that they were adopted and that their mother and father weren't their real mother and father, some people develop issues because you know the life that they led isn't what they thought it was, and I could see how something like that could cause. Um, some of the replicants to, you know, their life isn't what they thought it was. And I could see them having this, start having mental well, issues. Those replicants uh, that Decker was after, they did not have the implanted memories. So I think they all knew right from the start that they were replicants. Okay. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's another thing, too, to know that your time is coming. I mean, if we uh, were all given a piece of paper and said, this is going to be your last day on Earth – you might see some odd behavior around the world. There might be some people that take, uh, you know, accept uh, uh, it gracefully. There might be others that go out and try to live their life, uh, um, you know, for all it's worth. Maybe do strange and stupid things. 
I, I could see that uh, knowing the day that you're going to die could cause certain problems. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it would certainly uh, change your outlook on life. <laughs> yeah, better or worse, I don't know which, but um, um, yeah, I think as far as the um, the tech goes, we've kind of you know it wasn't a lot of tech. I think you know, like I said, the biggest uh, tech piece in this was the replicants, uh, and uh, we've kind of talked about uh, those. You know, I guess the genetic engineering which should go in hand with. Uh, creating replicant and, and artificial life forms. There was something that I thought was kind of significant in its absence. Because this movie was made before the internet, I thought it was kind of cool that they didn't have any reference at all to the internet. And there was a few times where, like, I was thinking, like, man, if he had a smartphone, like, like at the at the end when Roy is chasing him through the building, man, just call somebody <laughs> yeah I, <laughs> like it would like stuff like that would be solved so quickly today well yeah now okay now i'm gonna have to go back and watch a movie anyway yeah. because now i'm like, trying to think when's the last time you ever saw a cop without a radio well yeah and did they <laughs> communicate because he got called in to talk to uh um that guy to have him come back as a blade runner i'm trying to remember did they have any phone conversations the, uh in the elevator, he, he when, called. Uh, he called Rachel when he was at the bar, he, and it was like a video phone. Okay, yeah, yeah, I remember that one. Okay, and then in the elevator where uh, uh, they're going up to meet. Um, uh, oh, Tyrrell. Tyrrell, yeah. But, but that was like an intercom system because right. they were already within the building, right? Right. Yeah. So uh, I guess they did have you know forms of communications. They just didn't use them a lot. Um, yeah. For whatever reason, I don't know if it was costs or you know, but it was a video phone, which you know, I don't know if anybody'd want to see me calling them from a bar, especially if you've thrown back a few. So I don't know if that's yeah. a good thing. Like but. I think that's an interesting thing that uh, just in in the absence of it, um, just the fact that they don't have the internet because, like they, you know, when they made this movie, they had no idea that was coming. Um, but also, like certain visions of the future, like. For for as, as long as there's been sci-fi, pretty much, uh, th- this idea of, like what we're going to get our flying cars and we're going to have video phones. Like we've gotten to the point – we haven't gotten to the point where we could realistically have a flying car. But we've gotten to the point where we could realistically pretty much conduct all of our calls by video phone and we don't. And I think that that is significant that uh, – when we call somebody, we are calling them to talk to them, and that you know, you know, occasionally it is nice to see that person. Like my sister uh, moved to England in uh, January, so she and I have been talking on FaceTime fairly regularly, and that's nice because I'm not going to get to see her on a regular basis any you know for a few years. But for the most part, if we're just calling somebody like uh, like that call uh, call that he was making to Rachel. He didn't need to see her. And, and like if you were calling to just invite somebody down to a bar, you wouldn't say, oh, I'm going to get it with my phone and make sure this is a FaceTime call. You don't need that. And sci-fi has really kind of pushed that like, oh, you know, we're all oh, you know, in the future. We're always going to use these video calls. And I don't think that's coming. I think uh, there, there will quite likely be an option for that. But I think we, we will always have just like a voice only type of communication available to us. Yeah, I think so because you know if you're talking to somebody, um, 
sometimes you don't want them reading your body language, uh, depending upon what the conversation is and what you're talking about. Um, yeah, like you don't need to see that I'm sitting here in my underwear right now. <laughs> oh, hey, I certainly <laughs> hey. don't. Yeah, TMI guy. Um, and you know, I've always said that I've got a, a face built for radio. Uh, so I don't know that I want people, you know, looking at me. And the other thing is, um, I don't like making eye contact with people anyway. Because when my oldest son was diagnosed as autistic, they said one of the things that they have they're going to start working on is having him make eye contact. And I go, that's normal. Because um, I just don't like. I'm not one of those people that look you in the eye when you're talking. I may look off to one side or the other. And so, like I say, a video phone for me wouldn't be. I probably I might not be looking directly at you, or you know, it, it's just not. I've learned to be comfortable with it, but it's not the kind of thing that I necessarily like. So yeah, I'm not exactly in favor of the video phone yeah. either. Like, I think a lot of times sci-fi will show us like, oh, here's the next thing and that that the previous thing kind of gets just gets totally abandoned. And I don't think that's necessarily true. Like uh, like the idea like television didn't kill radio. They've talked about radio, you know, dying for years and I don't think that's that's ever gonna go away. Like it might go away in the terms of like AM, FM radio. But I think an audio only type of communication like what we're doing now I think it's here for as long as human beings have technology that can support it, right? Well, yeah, and, you know, a lot of people like to listen to something as they're traveling in the car. And last time I checked, video is uh, illegal in cars because they want you to pay attention to the road, not to a screen. So yeah. there's going to be certain areas where it would be audio only anyway. But, uh, yeah, I think it's just in the bandwidth, too, right now. Because uh, my daughter will Skype call once in a while, and she's got a crap internet connection. And I just and I keep trying to tell her turn off the video because the audio would be better quality. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes it's just the simplicity of it too, because you don't have to have a camera, you don't have to look nice. But um, and I think there's just something about listening to a person sometimes rather than looking at them. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, well. Yeah. I think we pretty much uh, covered most of you know, I guess we asked the question, well, what would you have for the tech? Um, mm. A little sparse here, but... Um, I think I'd take the flying car in this one. Yeah. Well, you know, a replicant, maybe, that, you know, because they were genetically engineered, so, you know, somebody that could lift a lot of stuff or, I don't know, it, you know, somebody that you could kind of control, that'd be... Or, uh... I can't remember the character's name, but the guy who played uh, Larry and my brother Daryl, my other brother Daryl, that that guy, uh, and is the little uh, the little people that he created. Companions. That might, companion, yeah, it might be cool to have one of them. Yeah, that's true. Just uh, you know, somebody that uh, you wouldn't have to. Well, I suppose you have to feed them, but I would still think the upkeep would be rather low on them. So that yeah. might be cool. Well. That wraps up this episode of Sci-Fi Tech Talk. You can check us out at SciFiTechTalk.com or follow us on Twitter at Sci-Fi Tech Talk. If you have any ideas or comments, please send them to Sci-Fi Tech Talk at gmail.com. And reviews on iTunes are always welcome. Jeff, where can people find you in cyberspace? People can find me at Bronco Sire on Twitter, and that's uh, at Bronco, S-Y-E-R. 
And I can be found on Twitter at DSC Chipman or I have an about.me page at about.me slash Mike McPeak. That's M-C-P-E-E-K. Uh, and that's it for this show, and we'll see you in the future. It's the sci-fi tech talk.